0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible therapist, Samantha Fox. Hello, Samantha, and welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Zach. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Today, we're going to be talking about coming out later in life. And for those that don't know, Samantha Fox is a licensed marriage and family therapist based in New York City. And she is also a sexuality coach working worldwide with women coming out later in life. Samantha has been in private practice since 2012, working with individuals and couples struggling with sexuality, sexual issues, coming out later in life, relationship issues, and intimacy. Her coaching program, Curious, questioning and coming out, gives women a safe space to explore, find and live their truth and creates an embracing community for women around the globe that are questioning their sexuality or coming out later in life. How are you today, Samantha?
0: I'm great. I'm great. Thank you.
1: So Thanks so much for coming on. I have so many questions about today's topic. It's a really interesting niche that you have found yourself in, and it's something really important that we haven't talked at all on the podcast about before. But before we get into the specifics of coming out later on in life, I just want to ask you some basic questions about relationships in general and how we can better love our partners. And I know the common thing that people say is that communication is important for every relationship. However, it's easier said than done. And most often, and as you have said, even before we started talking, you know, people aren't necessarily in touch with their inner worlds. They aren't necessarily able to communicate their emotions for a lot of reasons. So to you, what are some of the biggest obstacles towards effective and connecting communication?
0: Yeah, that's really a great question, Zach. Um, There are so many obstacles to good communication. And one of the big ones that I see a lot is the assumption that your partner knows what you are thinking (laughs) or that your partner should Mm -hmm. know what you are thinking when in fact they just don't and they can't. And what we need to do is to be able to ask for what we need. So I think that this is a really basic one that shows up in so many clients and couples that I see. And I think there are a lot of reasons why we feel like we can ask or we shouldn't ask or we don't want to have to ask our partners for what we need. And this is one of the real obstacles to couples being able to connect on a deeper level.
1: It's true. The assumed mind reader of the partner, other partner can be such a huge barrier. Because we do have this idea that once you fall in love with somebody, you twin flame, then you always just know what the other person wants.
0: Exactly.
1: So I'm a big fan of nonviolent communication, which does get into how every need that we have has a feeling attached to it. And if we get truly in touch with our feelings, we're able to figure out what is the underlying need that is being met in the case of a positive emotion or not being met in the case of a negative emotion. How do you kind of relate to emotions and this quality of our experience that we can get in touch with that most people know nothing about that we, of course, call our emotional world?
0: I like to think about the way that we're all wired with the same core seven emotions when we come out of the womb. Mm. So... When we're born, we're wired with our survival emotions, um, joy, mm. fear, anger, disgust, excitement, sexual excitement, and I think I'm missing one. Pop quiz. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll get back to it. Um, sadness. I don't think we oh, did sadness. sadness. There sadness it is. Thank you. That's that's the seventh. Yeah. So we're we're all wired with those in order to survive and thrive. And what happens is mm. as we enter into the world, our family systems create environments where some of those emotions get disconnected from in order to get our needs met from our family members. So in some families, it's not Mm -hmm. safe to be sad or it's not safe to be scared. And you learn through the interactions in your family how to essentially disconnect from core emotions, because if you have them, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get the needs met that you need in order to survive and thrive. Um, And so what happens at that point is that parts of you take over and they learn certain ways of coping with that that unfortunately can carry much further into adulthood than they're needed because these parts of us don't really realize that we no longer need that kind of protection. We're no longer living in our family systems. We're now adults. We have our own families. And so I see a lot of people who are very disconnected from their emotions or they have a spouse and they'll come in and say, you know, my husband is really unemotional or I'm really unemotional. And maybe you feel unemotional, but you did not come out of the womb unemotional. So a lot of it is mm-hmm. a, is learning to disconnect. And I like to deal with emotions in a way where we start to explore the parts of you that are keeping you disconnected from your emotions and why. And we start to soften them. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the work I do around reconnecting to your emotional world.
1: I realize you know, most of your work is probably with adults who are disconnected from their emotional world, but I'm wondering what advice we can give to parents to almost prevent this from happening. So you mentioned that because of our family systems when we were younger, we get disconnected from our emotions. So if I'm a parent and I don't want my child to be disconnected from their emotions, how can I make sure that happens?
0: Yeah, I mean, so emotions are something that we are wired with but we don't have language for. Mm. And so what you can do is you can help by creating the language and the narrative for your child. Um and you can try different things on, right? Oh my gosh, you know, um the toy just broke and you're you're so sad about this. It looks like you're Mm. really, really sad. You know, that makes so much sense. Come here. I'm sad too. Let me give you a hug. Let's be sad together for a little while, right? While they're completely melting down. So you're validating their experience Mm
2: -hmm.
0: as opposed to big deal. It broke. We have another one in the other room. Don't be sad. Don't cry, right? Disconnect. That's it. That's teaching the disconnect. Mm. So it's really about just filling mm-hmm. out a narrative and a story that you can give them and offer to them that helps explain what's happening emotionally.
1: I love that. I'll repeat what you said: that parents can help their child by creating the language and narrative for them to deal with their emotions just in a healthy and positive way. And you mentioned that, like, don't cry aspect and. I am kind of curious your observations on the kind of nature versus nurture debate and how much of the qualities that we see primarily in adults do come from our upbringing and do not, because when I hear like, don't cry, I do think of like how we tend to treat boys or um, people in male bodies. We tend to tell them don't boys, don't cry, you know, be tough. Like you can do, you know, and even like the studies show that if you put a baby in a, pink blanket or a baby in a blue blanket they're going to be treated differently even the ones in pink will be cared for a little bit more so you know when we do think that like adults are less in touch with their emotions there is this narrative that men are less in touch with their emotions right so what is your kind of take on this like do we have certain evolutionary tendencies or is a lot of it just how we were treated
0: I truly believe that this all comes from your environment and from the boxes Mm -hmm. that are placed on us by society. And I agree with you 100% that men are taught to be uh, more in control of their emotions or to really dampen their emotions because you're a man or you're a big boy and boys don't cry and these kinds of things. Whereas women are given a lot more freedom to express their emotions. And I think for that reason, you'll find women much more comfortable with emotionality and more in touch with their emotions. But I don't think that's how they're wired. I think Mm. we're all born with the same seven core emotions that are there for survival. And that brings me to this idea that as you're talking about with the blue blanket and the pink blanket is compulsory heterosexuality, which is something that I really like to talk a lot Mm -hmm. about. Um, And it's very true what you're saying, you know, with the blue blanket, you've got you see the blue blanket and there's a whole life set out just because the blanket is blue. You have a whole (laughs) picture of what is going to happen in the future. And the same with the pink blanket and that those are really boxes that are put Mm -hmm. upon us by society. So.
1: So you mentioned it. I love to get into it. For those totally unfamiliar with this term, what is compulsory heterosexuality?
0: So compulsory heterosexuality is a term that has to do with the idea that we are not given choices as humans when we're born as to what uh, preference we have for a relationship to Any gender or non-gendered person, we are basically put into boxes with the pink blanket and the blue blanket, as you said, and Mm -hmm. it is set out for us. And and I work primarily with women coming out later in life in my coaching practice who very much have fit into the box of being a good girl, Mm. pleasing everybody, doing the things that are expected of her, which means getting married. Having babies, being a good wife, being a good mother, being a good caretaker, and making sure everybody around you is okay and happy,
2: Mm, mm -hmm. right?
0: So this is one of the things that's laid out for women, and you marry a man. I mean, there are no choices there, right? And the same really goes for men, you know, men are put in the same box where they're going to be a husband, they're going to be a supporter, they're going to be strong, they're going to be, you know, like a mountain, and they're not going to be emotional, and they're not going to waver, and they're going to be successful. And, you know, all of these things that are put out for men, which create a box for them that's very hard to get out of. Mm -hmm. So compulsory heterosexuality is something that When you do come to realize later in life that you're not straight, you bump up against a lot of guilt and shame about not being able to fit into that box that was set out for you really by society.
1: What I'm hearing from you is that compulsory heterosexuality is not just certain societal family pressures for a certain sexual orientation like being heterosexual but also all the encompassing narratives ideas we have around our gender expression gender stereotypes what expectations around how our gender is supposed to behave and how we are supposed to step into these roles is is more masculine feminine like stereotypes exactly So I'd love to hear more about your path and how you got on this work that you're doing in the world. Um, You have this amazing coaching program, Curious, Questioning, and Coming Out, and Focus on Women, particularly. So how did this come about? What made you want to start working with women, particularly in the subset of the LGBTQ community?
0: Yeah, so of course, I have my own story which goes back to 20 years ago, Mm. uh, when I was 32. And I had been married at that time for about six and a half years. And I had been with my husband for about two years before that. I had three young children. And I realized very suddenly, in a conscious way, because subconsciously, it had been there for quite some time. But I, I realized very consciously at 32, that I was not straight and I actually Mm. fell for a woman and I ended up going down this journey of my own sexuality, separating, getting divorced, raising my kids in two homes. And Mm. it was quite an experience. This was 2002. So today there are a lot more resources for women around this and coming out later, but at that Mm -hmm. time it was a bit scarce. And coming out of that experience and having survived that experience and then actually starting to thrive, I really wanted to work with this group of women And I did, I I advertised this in my practice, in my private practice, I did work with many women through therapy in this way, but I'm in New York State, I'm in New York City, so I'm a New York licensed therapist, and I was limited to the women only in New York that I could work with. And so having gone through the journey, having realized that there were so many things I didn't know then that I learned over the course of my career as a therapist that could help women on this journey. I, I could help women all around the globe by starting a coaching practice, mm-hmm. a coaching program specifically for this group of women with all of the skills that I had as a therapist. I, um, I came into this and I've been absolutely loving it. it is, it's a full circle for me.
1: So, wow, <laughs> quite a story you have. And there's so many questions I have about your personal story. First question, I have this like chicken or egg in my mind, because you mentioned you realized you were not straight and you fell for a woman. Did this happen? Did you fall for a woman? And then we're like, oh, no. Or did you first discover that you weren't straight and then opened up the possibility to falling in love with other genders?
0: That's a great question. And I wish I had a really direct answer for you, but I don't, because Mm -hmm. in the strangest of ways, they were kind of happening at the exact same time. So... Mm
2: -hmm.
0: When I say that I didn't consciously realize that I wasn't straight, I didn't consciously realize that I was interested in women, I think there really just was no space for that to be a conscious piece of information for me because I had three babies. I had twins. And then two and a half years later, I had another one. And so I had three babies under three. Uh, at the same time. And at the same time that that was happening, I would read lesbian novels, I would Mm. rent lesbian movies, when my husband would travel for business, he was away a lot for business. So I was home alone a lot of the time. And I would indulge myself in these things, but then as soon as he would come back, they'd be away in the closet, and I was living the perfectly straight life. And I almost forgot about it when he was around as well. So there was a way of really pushing it into the closet, so to speak, for myself until the point where actually 9 11 was a catalyst for me. Mm. Uh, I was in New York City when 9-11 happened, and it had such a huge impact on me in that I had never realized how fragile life was. So I was 32. Mm. I just hadn't had any experience of huge loss in my life up until then.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this was so tragic and so huge. It really shook me up, and it gave me this feeling of I only have this one time through, and how can I continue to live something that's not 100% me? So that surfaced on a conscious level. And I began to open my eyes a little bit around me to the world around me and ended up falling for somebody, but still not realizing that I fell for them until about six weeks in. So I even shared with my husband at the time that I was very obsessed with this person, having no connection to mm. what it meant. So it took some time for the, you know, actual situation to line up with my conscious idea of what was happening and that this all meant that I wasn't straight. It was a process.
1: So I think one of the biggest questions when we hear about anyone who was in a heterosexual relationship for a long time and then they come out as as gay or lesbian is, well, how Right. And I know this is a big thing in the 60s, 70s and 80s as homosexuality became more accepted, as it became more popular, more and more people kept coming out. I know people in their 60s, 70s, they've been married for 40, 50 years, finally feeling free to come out to you know, divorce their partner of decades and enter into a relationship is more in line with who they see themselves to be. So the question is like, how how does this work? How does this happen? Like, what was going on in your mental emotional world? Did you feel like you were faking it, like you were being duplicitous? Like we're talking married, husband, three young children. How were you feeling, thinking at the time? Was it all an act, so to speak?
0: Yeah, so you know, I think that I'm gonna go back to the compulsory heterosexuality piece because I think that for me. I felt that it was the right thing to do. It was what was the next step, the natural next step. It was kind of what was expected of me. And I had been a very free-spirited young person, and I did a lot of traveling through Europe and living in Europe, and I had a lot of boyfriends, and I had a lot of love in my life. Um, it was time to just buckle it all up and settle down. And it just felt like, you know, I was, I was 27 when I got married. And so it felt like, well, this is the time where I have to buckle it up now. You know, I've already lived the free spirited life. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that it was acting in any way, Uh, But what I would say was that through the years of the marriage, I did notice kind of like my spirit dying, I would say. And I would have Mm. these dreams where my spirit would be really alive and I'd wake up from the dream and it would be devastating because my real life Mm. didn't match that. And I had lost that light that was inside of me. And it was was like a part of me really died.
1: Mm. And... Now that you've been working with a lot of women who are going through, have gone through the same situation, is there a general sort of process paradigm that you have found along the lines of, you know, increasing sadness, perhaps increasing depression, as you mentioned, you felt like your spirit dying, and then this sort of discovery exploration process?
0: So what I would say is that for many women, They do know, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I would say maybe more than half of the women do know early on that they have these attractions, but they just, there's no representation. You know, they had no idea what to do with Mm -hmm. it. It would not have been accepted. And so what happens is they, as we talked about earlier, they shut this down. Parts of them shut this down inside And Mm. the coping mechanisms that show up to manage it are things like lots of anxiety, you know, Mm. deep depression or, you know, depressive episodes one after another. Some people it's substance Mm -hmm. abuse. And these are things that can show up for women that are struggling with their sexuality, but it completely covers it up. So they have no idea Mm. that, This is what's happening for them until they get into some good therapy where they start to be able to explore what's happening underneath the depression, underneath the anxiety, underneath the substance abuse. And there are some sexuality questions there.
1: Hmm. So I'd love to get a little bit into almost women's sexuality in general, and what you've kind of found in your work. I remember over a decade ago being in grad school, taking human sexuality, and we all read Lisa Diamond's Sexual Fluidity, which went into the research that showed how women's sexuality is quite fluid over time. You ask women right now, you know, how straight are you, how bi, how gay, or lesbian? And um, they would, you know, scale one to 10 rate it. And then she would ask five years, 10 years later, and find that for many women these answers changed So, you know, when I hear like, oh, right, I was, you know, in this relationship for 15, 20 years and then I discovered, right, that, you know, more lesbian desires and it's like, well, was this there the whole time or is it possible that there's just changes, right, there's internal changes happening Now, this might be dated knowledge, (laughs) so I'm curious. Yeah, just what is your understanding on female sexual fluidity and how desires have changed, what stayed the same, and what you have found with folks?
0: Yeah, so sexual fluidity is a real thing for women. Whether it comes from, again, the compulsory heterosexuality component, which I think for some Mm. women... As they become older and they become more accomplished and more comfortable and secure with themselves, I think there's more space and more permission for them to start to think a little bit outside the box. And so mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. say that that fluidity might have always existed, but because of the compulsory heterosexuality, it just didn't have any breathing room. Mm-hmm. So that's one possibility. I think there's also the possibility that some women are completely heterosexual, have zero attraction to women. And then as life goes on, that starts to change and shift. And I also think it can it can shift back. There are women that were with mm-hmm. women in college and they had girlfriends and partners, and then they decided to partner with a man. And I have clients that I work with, even in therapy, that have been really gay since they've been 18. They haven't been with a man since they're 18 and now they're 49 and they have young kids and they are thinking Mm. about dating men. So this can Mm. just happen, right? I don't think there's any one set way to be a sexual human being. Uh, I think we have a lot of sexualities and I think if we just could remove the boxes and give ourselves the freedom, Mm. There's a lot of space there.
1: So it's so interesting because you keep using the word compulsive heterosexuality, which doesn't sound too bad when it's like, oh, you get these messages in the media, because I am thinking about extreme prejudice, somebody in my experience, extreme hate as also being huge driving forces to be or appear more straight, to appear uh, more in line with your sex that it was assigned at birth. Um So what kind of role have you seen, you know, people grew up in evangelical Christianity or people who did grow up around all sorts of messages that they then really have to unpack to even like peek open the door of that proverbial closet?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a really tough one, Zach, that you're bringing up is the discrimination and the ideas about same-sex relationships that come from different cultures, different religions. And I have to say there's so much damage done in that area. And yes, that also, aside from the compulsory heterosexuality, that is a huge, uh, you know, a huge deterrent to coming out. Mm -hmm. And that work, that work is very deep work that people need to do because faith is very um central to people's belief systems about everything about life about death mm-hmm. about how you move through the world and to pick apart the pieces of your religious background that work for you and the ones that don't when you're actually not straight. It's just excruciating work and
2: mm. you
0: you possibly might, you know, you, you possibly might lose your family and you might lose your community and you might be really on the outs mm. and you might have to really hide. And, and coming out isn't for everybody, right? So not everybody can mm. come out. Um, some people can come out to themselves and that's already really a big piece that can help with your own mental health and your own emotional state. But in some places, coming out means you're at risk of being killed, right? So in some parts of the world, right? right? So yes, I I hear you. And the compulsory heterosexuality is, is one piece of this. And then there are the cultural beliefs and the religious beliefs that really say that this is a sin and that you're going to go to hell and family members that pray for you and, um, believe that you're really in big trouble. You're really on your way to hell and they just can't find a way to accept it. And this is very, very painful.
1: So would you say those are some of the biggest struggles for this particular group of women coming out later on in life or are there other things also to consider?
0: I mean, I think the, 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 it's, it's endlessly difficult on so many levels, Mm. you know, I think, first of all, I think just, so coming out later in life. So really the group of women that I specialize and work with the most are ones that are coming out after marriage. Mm -hmm. So the idea of any separation and divorce is very difficult for Mm -hmm. anybody that's going through it. So that's just in and of itself, that's its own journey then layer on top of it that the reason that you're going through that is because of your sexuality. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of feeling very selfish. There's a lot of questioning Mm. as to whether or not your sexuality is worth breaking up your family. Is it that important Mm. that you be able to be your true sexual self is it better that you stay put and stay in your marriage and maybe have a platonic relationship so that your kids grow up with an intact family, right? So these are all things
2: mm-hmm.
0: that are part of this process. A lot of guilt, a lot of shame, and mm-hmm. women are givers. You know, we're, we're in this position in society where we really are givers and caretakers a lot of the time, and this mm-hmm. can be seen as a very selfish act, and so it, it's a difficult mm. one for that reason. That's one of the biggest.
1: So you just laid out what to me feels like a very difficult and challenging path. And I'm curious what the light at the end of the tunnel looks like, what the hope at the end of the tunnel looks like. So um, I'm thinking about coming out to my partner. And will my life be better at the end of this long process?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and that's one that almost every woman that I work with asks, Mm. and I have everybody fill out a questionnaire of what, if they had a magic wand and they could wave it and have the Mm -hmm. perfect life, what would they want it to be at the end of the program that, that I take them through? And they all pretty much say the same thing, which is being best friends with my husband, Living nearby, mm. having a woman that I love, having my kids, having the love from, you know, my husband and maybe his new partner and also my new partner and just having one big happy life. So that mm. is something that women look forward to. Um, I think one of the other pieces that I've noticed in women that have been Really holding on to this for a very long time and are finally ready to address it. And by the way, it's not infrequent that the spouse, the husband, is the one that pushes them to um, start to explore what's going on with them because a lot of these women are depressed mm-hmm. and they've been depressed for a while and uh, mm-hmm. their husbands are pushing them to find out what's going on. And so I think that the idea of being able to be authentically yourself and embody yourself fully is, I mean, it's really priceless. Mm. You know, we have one time through anyway in this particular human suit that we're in this time. And to go through that, not being able to be authentically yourself, I think is a very painful journey. So I feel that, you know, it is is worth it just to be able to be truly who you are. And a lot of women want to know, Mm. well, am I going to find a partner? And how do I know I'm going to have a lifelong partner? And, you know, uh, there are no guarantees in any relationship that you're ever going to have a lifelong partner. Um, Love is a risk. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, Uh, I really try to have people focus on they're going to get to be with themselves and they're going to get to love themselves and accept themselves and embody themselves and actually come to a place where they're even proud to be who they are. And that this is really what the journey is about. It's not just about another person.
1: Hmm. I love that so much. You said it's fully worth it to truly be. Who you are. And I'd love to go a little bit more into that future arrangement and what arrangements you have found people enter into because you mentioned that for the magic wand fantasy life, people want to be best friends with their husband, live nearby, live with somebody, a woman that they love. But you also mentioned sometimes people do consider being in a platonic relationship in order to keep the household together, and this is again something I heard more of, like in the seventies and eighties, that when one partner would come out, you know, they'd be like, "Well, I still love you," you know, we don't have to have sex; we can just live under one house, raise raise the kids together, maybe separate when the kids are out, for example. But I can also imagine maybe if we're coming out more as bisexual, right? Maybe we stay in the relationship, explore something like open relationships or polyamory. So, what are some successful paradigms arrangements that you have seen people enter into once they have fully come out?
2: Yeah,
0: that's a great question. And, you know, really, I want to just say to start off that the sky is the limit. So I've seen a lot of different (laughs) arrangements, and a lot Mm. of different arrangements that work for We don't know how long they're going to work for in the same way sexuality is fluid. Mm -hmm. These arrangements are fluid, right? So making space for things that right now feel like they really work. And I'll give you a few examples of those. I have a number of women who have been in long-term marriages with men that are truly their best friends. I mean, they love their husbands, And they Mm -hmm. might be in a platonic relationship or they might have infrequent sex. So the relationship is not built on something sexual or sensual. It's built on friendship and deep respect and real love for another human, Mm. building a life together, building a family together, right? These women don't necessarily want to completely move out, move on, break everything up. They would like to try to stay in their marriage but they want to explore ethical non-monogamy, right? And that might mean an open relationship. It might mean polyamory, right? So I see women that are really interested in doing some work to understand more about relationship styles and different options that they never thought of before, because I'm going to go back to the compulsories again. Compulsory monogamy is another compulsory that we Mm. have in our society where I see a lot of couples that come in, um, straight couples. Usually, it's straight couples, and they don't even know what I'm talking about when I say, "What is your relationship contract? What style of relationship do you have?" Mm. And they just, well, mm-hmm. we're not, mono- I mean, of course, we're monogamous. So, and they've never talked about it, right? So, this particular situation of coming out later opens up the idea that there are other styles of relationships. Ethical non-monogamy mm. is definitely a possibility for a lot of people, and it's also. Uh, like an interim solution at times. So husbands start Mm -hmm. to go out and date, wives start to go out and date, you might still be living under the same roof. Right. And over a couple of years, Mm -hmm. maybe that stops working. And then you change into uh, really separating and having separate relationships. So that's one idea. Also, people nest. Uh, which is a common thing that people do now in separation and divorce, where you move in and out of the house, but the house remains the children's house. So Mm. the couple gets an apartment together outside of the uh, main home, which remains the children's home. They get a two bedroom apartment and they move in and out of it. So one week One person's in the house with the kids and the other person's in the apartment in their bedroom, having their own separate life, doing whatever it is that they're going to be doing. And then it switches for the next week. That also works for couples, not necessarily for long-term, but I've seen some couples actually do this long-term, right? So there's a lot of different creative options that people come up with. And I think as long as you are willing to really explore and try to problem solve and collaborate with your partner and they're on board with you, I think there are many different ways to make this happen.
1: You know, I know that your focus is mostly on women, but I am wondering, are there any differences between whether you are a gay man looking to come out versus out of your marriage versus a lesbian woman looking to come out?
0: You know, I I can't say I haven't worked with gay men, with men who have been in heterosexual relationships who are coming out later, though I have had clients, the wives of those men. So I have had clients Mm. who are, you know, essentially left by their husband because they came out. Mm. And I can't say that there's a lot different. I haven't worked in depth with men going through this. But my guess is that there's a lot of the same shame, guilt, you know, just really struggling to be yourself and be okay with that. You know, your whole world changes your friends. What are they going to think? What are your business partners going to think? I mean, it's just, it's, it's not easy. This is not an easy journey. I always say this is not for the faint of heart. But worth it. Yes, it can very much be worth it, 100%.
1: So as our time is winding down, something that keeps coming up for me listening to you is the importance of living true to ourselves and how that can also be a way of loving ourselves. And this goes beyond simple sexuality or even relationship style when you talk about compulsory heterosexuality, compulsory monogamy, you know, I think an essential part of the human path is to look at all the things society tells us we should do, tells us how we should behave, right? Like we maybe we have a passion for art, but we're told we have to get a degree that's going to pay the bills. And I do think that's one of the hardest things for us to do is think about, well, what is true to who I am and what is, what have I just been taught? So I'm curious more just in a general sense, how do we begin that process, that long, lengthy process of shedding societal, parental narratives and expectations to live more true with ourselves?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is really the journey of life, right? I mean, kind of how I see it anyway, is each each moment, each day becoming closer to who you really are. And um, breaking down those walls and those barriers and the boxes that are put on us. And how do you do that? Right. So mm-hmm. I think of that as really deep internal work, um, you know, and I think there are different ways of getting there. I can't say enough about having a great therapist. I think that therapy is very mm-hmm. helpful for learning how to find yourself if you have a therapist that can really lead you closer to your truth and ask the right questions so that you can find yourself, you know, in outside essentially of all of the boxes that are placed on us. Um, so and I also know a lot of people have spiritual practices, meditation practices, and things like that, which can also help them move closer to themselves. So journaling, yoga practice, meditation practice, therapy, all of these things can help people to move closer to finding who they really are in this world this one time through. And there's a lot of discovery there. I'd say like the key to all of it, which unfortunately not everybody has is curiosity, right? So, are you curious about who you are? Are you curious about getting to know yourself more? And not everybody is. Some people learn curiosities, not a good thing. Don't be curious. Don't show that you don't know things. That's embarrassing. You should know everything. That's a lot of what society tells us. Um, not knowing is mm-hmm. not good. And I love not knowing, I love curiosity. And therefore I've been on a lifelong journey to understand and seeking answers. And um, I think that's the answer. I mean, I really think curiosity is step number one.
1: Mm, I love that. We're told not knowing is not good, but stay curious. That beginner's mind I love is one of my favorite concepts. So I'm a little tempted to uh, ask you this question because you're like, you know, know who you truly are, know your truth. And it does enter into kind of the realm of spirituality or metaphysics. But I often remind people that psychotherapy, that the psyche does not mean the mind, it means the soul, right? So do you have your own conceptualization on who us as human beings truly are?
0: Oh, that's a great question. And I wish I did, but I really don't. I mean, I think I don't have a, a, a definitive answer, I should say. I'm a very energy-oriented person, so I like mm-hmm. to think of us as energy. We are energy. Mm-hmm. To me, I'm I'm a highly sensitive person, so I can feel energy if I'm sitting with somebody and they're not speaking, I can sense their energy. If I'm walking by somebody on the street of New York City, I can sense the person I'm walking past's energy. And so you can't Mm -hmm. see it. It's not something anyone's telling you, but I actually feel it. And so to me, We are energetic beings and our energy lives on even after our soul is gone. And that is my spiritual belief and understanding, not based in any one school or any one teacher, but just based in my experience.
1: I so appreciate you sharing that. Earlier, when you mentioned the seven fundamental emotions, one of them being sexual excitement, right? Even somebody's like, "I don't believe in energy; that's a bunch of woo-woo stuff." And then you're like, "How do you feel about that person?" And they're like, "I get so much energy from them. <laughs> are we have so much uh, energy between us." It's like, "Ah, yes." <laughs> so, thank you so much, Samantha Fox, for coming on to the show. And I do have to finish with a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is. What do you wish everyone knew about love?
0: That's a great question. And for me, the answer would be that we are love. So each person is love. You have all the love you need already inside of you. What you need to do is you need to kind of like take these layers off that get placed upon us by all of the systems and society in order to really get to that seed, to that core of who you are. And all of the love that exists is really inside of you. It begins with you. It's not something outside. That's really what I wish people knew.
1: Yes. So we are energetic beings and we are love loving energy. Thank you so much Samantha Fox. For though for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you?
0: Yeah, so you can check out my website at curiousquestioningandcomingout.com. I also am on Instagram at curiousquestioningcomingout no and And I also have a YouTube channel with lots of videos, short videos, all about coming out later in life and answering a lot of questions that my viewers send in to me. And the YouTube channel is Curious Questioning and Coming Out.
1: Well, thank you so much, Samantha, for coming on to the show and sharing us your wisdom. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons that we learned today, including how important it is to get in touch with our emotional worlds. And even as a parent, you can help your child stay connected to their emotional world by creating a language and a narrative around their emotions. And the path of coming out is challenging but it's totally worth it. And the sky is the limit for what can happen afterwards. And don't forget, we are love. Each person is love. You have all the love you need inside of you. And it's just a matter of taking off the layers that get placed upon us to find the core of love that we are. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Samantha. Thanks so much, Zach.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.